You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Hey, Cliff. Hi, Bobo. How you doing, man? Good, man. Good. Just surviving the pandemic, no problems. But uh, I got us a special guest today. You've been talking about this guest for a little while, and you haven't told me who it is or or anything like that. So I'm kind of excited to learn a little bit about it. Well, you'll recognize the report. I'm sure it's Sarah. She was a female backpacker back in the late 90s who had an incredible encounter up in the Marble Mountains. I'll let her tell the story, but you will recognize it, I promise. Fantastic. Fantastic. Let's bring her on. Sarah, welcome aboard. This is Cliff. Yeah, actually, I don't want to confuse you, Sarah. That was actually Bobo who said that, but I understand I get us mixed up sometimes, too. But yeah, I'm Cliff. It's nice <laughs> to meet you, Sarah. <laughs> nice to meet you, too, Cliff. And <laughs> Bobo's voice is uh, unmistakable, so thank you both for having yeah. me. His voice is like the grumbling of a volcano before it belches. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Sarah's report, they, they tried to get a hold of her for finding Bigfoot, but couldn't track her down. I thought, well, there's a phone over here. It's like 23 years old. I'll try it anyways. And I tried it. She still had the same number. Oh, nice. And she's not just your average witness. She's got full accreditations. Can you tell us a little about your, your background, Sarah, and then go into your, your story? Uh, yeah, a little bit about my background is um, I grew up in California in the Bay Area, and my dad and I were avid outdoors people. And he taught me how to fish and hike and a little bit of backpacking. And then when I went to uh, college in the 90s up at Chico State, I really became an avid uh, backpacker. So um, I sort of followed this path that maybe my career would be in the natural resources and outdoor sciences. And um, I had worked in the summer of 96 for the Klamath National Forest, and so I learned a lot about that area. And so the following summer, I was going to summer school, and um, I wanted to plan out a a big 100-mile solo hike. And so I did that. And uh, not to get too far into the story, um, I did eventually obtain a science degree and actually my forester's license here in California. So I'm a registered professional forester. I live in Northern California. And is that, is that the way you make your living today still? Yeah, I'm a, I'm an active licensed forester. I um, do a lot of wildfire safety planning. I see. Okay. Very good. So, um, and so you had an encounter at one point with a Sasquatch. Uh, what what's the context of that? Like, what were you doing at the time? And, uh, was that on that hundred mile trek that you just mentioned? That's correct. It was the second night in. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so Sarah, where were you camp? What was the like physical location like? So I was, uh, the second night in on a hundred mile backpacking trip and I had hiked a fair amount the first day. And then I noticed on my map that there was this lake that I wanted to try and get to. So I made it to the lake within the late afternoon, evening of uh, the second day. And then just beyond the lake, although the lake was beautiful, 
it was a little bit smaller than I had imagined. And just beyond the lake, I could kind of catch a glimpse of what looked like a big rock outcropping. And so I continued on to that. And when I got there, it was like this football field of a flat uh, escarpment, this big uh, rock, solid rock field, which now knowing what I know about the area, I believe was a large marble escarpment. And so I wanted to camp there that night. So you set up camp um, on the on this uh, outcropping, I guess. And um, uh, did, did the encounter happen during the day, at night? Like, how did the whole thing begin? So I didn't bring a tent on the trip. Um, it was hot, and it was forecasted to be very hot for the whole time. In fact, along the trip, I had left articles of clothing, like a rain jacket and a, a few things where I was like, I'm not going to need these things. And need to lighten my load if I'm actually going to make it through this trip. So I didn't have a tent. And so when I got to the, um, the site that I wanted to camp at, I set up my, my bag, um, my sleeping bag and, you know, my backpack and kind of unpacked a little bit right there. And I I knew that I was going to encounter a bear or two or however many, and I was pretty concerned about bears on the trip. And so I, packed up all my food stuff and my stove and hiked way over to the far side of the escarpment and cooked my dinner. I was pretty crashed out and wanted to go to bed. And it was kind of early. It was maybe just dusk. So late August and it was starting to get dark and I'm laying there in my bed and I fell asleep and I was, I was sleeping hard and uh, I woke up in the middle of the night to a sound. It was really far away and very faint and I could hear it. And at first I thought, oh, it's probably an owl. It kept going and I was kind of trying to go, to go back to sleep. And the way that I was uh, situated on the escarpment with my, my sleeping bag, I was basically feet facing down this, this canyon or ravine. And it was a big canyon. So I keep hearing the noise. And now reminding you, this was 23 years ago. And so I'm, I'm remembering this right now as I, as I tell you guys what happened. So what I was hearing was repetitive. And it just didn't stop. It was still faint and very far away. But it was repetitive. So then I thought, after I thought maybe it was an owl and I was just going to go back to sleep. Then I thought, well, maybe it's a bugling elk. And so I um, was laying there and sure enough, it continued without pause. And it was over and over and over again of what I originally called this inward howl. And it was one after the next. And I will tell you that it started to grow just slightly louder. And so then I started thinking to myself, okay, probably not an owl, maybe not a bugling elk. I did think maybe this was a mountain lion. And then eventually I ended up having some scary thoughts that maybe it was a, a man or a, a person, really a man that was crazy or, or drunk <laughs> way down in the bottom of a wilderness canyon. And 
I have to be honest, that thought immediately went away because (laughs) of the unlikelihood of that. And all along it kept going. And so now I'm in my mind going, what in the world is that? And it's getting louder and it keeps going and it's clearly running and howling up the creek down at the bottom of this, this canyon that I'm sleeping up above. And so I thought, okay, whatever it is, no problem. I'm way up here at the top of this canyon and really at the base of a peak. So there's nothing that can get up here. And earlier in the night when it was still light, I had definitely looked over the canyon a bunch. And so I knew that I was right over um, like a short cliff base with a big scree field down below and then the ravine. And it was huge. I mean, the relief in those canyons can easily be 2,000 feet. Um, So as it started to get louder and louder and clearly running and calling or doing whatever it was doing, crying or whatever you want to call it, all the way up and repetitively, I started thinking this thing is running up the canyon and is running to the boulder field, the scree pile down below. So then I kind of thought, well, that'll surely stop it in its tracks. And so the time, the time period is a little bit foggy in my recollection. In all honesty, I think that it was probably about 45 minutes of hearing it down in the creek bottom in the ravine until it got to what was the, the boulder field down below. And when it got to the boulder field, again, continuously howling or inward howling, at that point, I could start to hear it. I could start to hear clearly that there was something running and, frankly, hauling ass. And it was going fast through this boulder field carrying, you know, running and sort of carrying its body. And I could just start to make out rocks moving, but just faintly. Obviously, at this point, it was much louder. It was right below me by, I don't know, 200 feet. It started, you know, kind of propelling itself up what was the the boulder field. I'm I'm scared, you guys. I I was so scared. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was coming for me. I just was laying there as scared as you can imagine, completely breathless, completely motionless and thinking, okay, it's going to get to the bottom of the cliff and there's no way any bugling elk or crazy person or whatever could climb up that cliff. And and I, being an outdoors person and adventurer, I was familiar with rock climbing a little bit at that point. I went on to do some more rock climbing, but I knew that, you know, no one could climb that without ropes. It was easily a 5.9, maybe a 5.8 pitch. It would have been a, a crumbly, very steep cliff face. And, um, it was at least 
50 feet tall, if not, I don't know, 70 feet, 75 feet. And sure enough, the thing started and you could hear it pulling itself and climbing up the cliff. And it was really interesting because when it got to the bottom and started the climbing was the first that it had taken a real break from the, the howling or the, the whooping. And so it sort of caught its breath and it had some, I could hear some grunts and some slight pitches, but not the repetitious whoops that <laughs> later in the call, I can describe to you guys what I heard. But anyways, things started climbing up the cliff and I'm at the very top of it. And I'm just off to the side of what was a little creek that sort of defined the escarpment and the cliff and then down into the ravine. I was just off to um, sort of the river right side of that little creek or brook that was really more of ice melt from the peak above. By about, um, I don't know if I was 15 feet or 30 feet, but I was right in there, 15 to 30 feet off the side of that, that little creek that wouldn't have been more than a foot or two wide. So I just kept laying in my bag and essentially praying that I wasn't coming to get gobbled up. It continued to climb successfully and pretty quickly. And when it got to the top of the cliff, it was so amazing. The thing just pulled itself up and over. It just used whatever arms it had and hoisted itself up and almost like it jumped up and over the top. So at that moment, you put your eyes on it. You could actually see the thing that uh, you've been listening to for the last 45 minutes at that point. That's correct. And there was moonlight. I didn't want to move my eyes. I didn't want to move anything. I didn't want to breathe. I didn't want to move my eyes or my head. But instinct, I had to. I had to see what was, you know, coming for me or whatever. And it, it wasn't coming for me. I'll tell you that now. But nevertheless, my eyes just went slowly and steadily to the left. And right then, it started up as if it was going to start running again and took a big breath and sort of hesitated and stopped just for a split second and looked and looked at me and I looked at it and the only thing that I can describe of what I saw was similar to a gorilla. I think, <laughs> I think I scared the crap out of it. Honestly, I think that it was at that moment just as scared as I was and realized it wasn't alone thinking that it was. And I still didn't move and was extremely frightened, if not on the verge of a heart attack. That's how I am right now. <laughs> and at that point, so it looks to the left over, you know, so we're facing opposite directions. So we both just barely look to our left. And as soon as it notices that there's someone or something else right there, it just stands up and howls and takes off so fast. 
Anyways, it took off and was at the base of that peak in probably 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. And then it continued to climb up that peak doing the howl, the travel howl for another only like 20 or 30 minutes. And I'm still laying in my bag, just as scared as can be. And it stayed up there for hours and hours until almost sunrise. And it called the whole time as loud as you can imagine, consistently, one after the other, and just stayed there calling out. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. You said that uh, when it saw you, when it noticed you up there, it, it let out a howl. Um, and then a moment later, you referred to an, um, a traveling howl. So that vocalization that it emitted when it saw you was different than the other ones? It was like, a, it was more of a grunt. It was more of like the grunt that I was hearing when it was climbing. And it was like a, but it was a, a like a hiccup. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. Like, okay. <laughs> and then, <laughs> well, that, that, practiced. That's, you practice. <laughs> I do the same. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> so the, the the howl, the travel howl, that remained pretty consistent from when you first started hearing it to when it reached the top of the mountain at 45 minutes an hour or so later. It was notably consistent and methodical. Okay, well, to describe that howl, I'm, I'm curious what that was. Like, was it uh, a whoop, a long howl, a scream, high pitch, low pitch, the yeah. frequency? What can you tell us about that? So I've always described it um, to my, my closest confidants <laughs> as an inward howl or an inward drawl. And it had a fairly high but medium high pitch. And it was, it was created, it would be created in drawing the lungs in. And so the travel or running how, um, how is what I'm calling it would be like, wow. So that kind of frequency, like that's how often that happened. And that's the approximately the length of the vocalization you heard as well. From when the, the moment I heard it until it got to the bottom of the cliff field, or excuse me, the, um, the cliff in the rock field, it was consistent and just like that. Wow. And so that was probably close to an hour and a half, maybe two hours of hearing that. Oh, okay. I had the timeline a little off. Yeah. It, well, so the, what I was saying is it was probably close to 45 minutes down in the bottom of the ravine, so kind of the flat area, and then another, say, 25, maybe 40 minutes through the rock field. And crazy enough, I want to say that it climbed that cliff in like five minutes. It was fast. Yeah. Maybe it was 10. But really, I think it, it was a total of from the time I started hearing it to the time it got to me my location was an hour and a half. And that's in real person time, not the, I, I'm getting the crap scared out of me alone in the Marble Mountains time. I imagine right. it felt, felt like an eternity for you. It felt like an eternity for sure. And um, to this day, I, I really, 
I do struggle with putting some some real time to that. But <laughs> I bet I bet you do. <laughs> that, was that your last solo extended backpacking trip? I don't think it was, Bobo. <laughs> No, and I continued on the trip. I I actually had a goal. I was going to try and go off route um, and go into the wilderness off off trail, but um, I really couldn't find my way with just wayfinding, and I did not want to get lost. And I knew my dad would kill me if I got lost. <laughs> so so I uh, I went back to the trail and continued on and carried out a, a full. It was actually a 98-mile trip. That must have changed um, something with you on that trip. Like that's the second day in on a 100-mile trip. That that certainly must have planted some sort of seed in you for the rest of the trip, just thinking like, holy crap, those things are out here. Those things were out there, and I knew that, but I was in such shock (laughs) that I put it in the depths of my mind. I was so focused on doing this trip, hello type A, (laughs) (laughs) that I just, I wanted to do the trip. It was a huge goal for me that whole year. And I just, I didn't want to let it go because of this creature that came through my camp. Were they on your radar before that trip? I mean, obviously, of course, you, you were aware of Sasquatches, but like, um, did you think they're real? Did you think that they're just like a normal forest sort of thing out there that I could run into? Um, yeah. re- okay, they so. were very much on my radar by then because uh, the summer before is when I worked for the, the feds and um, spent my summer up in the, the Klamath the whole time. And I'd heard stories and I read the... Um, that great book about the biodiversity of the Siskiyou. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And they mentioned it, uh, the Klamath Knot, is that it? The Klamath Knot, that's it. Yeah, there you go. Good one. Yeah, so they were just barely in my mind. Um, So that year that I was working for the feds, we were doing a survey. We were doing a, a recreational user survey. And I actually ended up um, interviewing this group of cave expeditioners that were heading into the marbles and they were going to try and do some mapping of the caves. And they had mentioned at that interview, you know, yeah, there's, there's caves out there. And, and, uh, we think that, that, that is habitat and home to some of the Sasquatch and possibly last remaining Sasquatch on the planet. And at the time, I mean, I was even a year younger then. So when I was like 18, I kind of was like, huh? Okay. (laughs) Mark that one in the books. And so I, I I mean, I knew that that there was the concept of these things being out there. And like I said, I, you know, I was grew up as an outdoors person with my dad and, um, but nothing like what I had actually experienced but you had a on your one the year before. You made an interesting interesting observation. You, you thought that it sounded like it was wounded. Yeah. So um, the reason why I was turned on to the book, the Klamath Knot, was uh, I, I met an individual out there, and I myself and my partner, my working partner, who I wish I could get a hold of, but I I have no idea how to get a hold of this person. Anyways, he and I both had this creature 
come through our camp uh, late one night, and it was it was like limping um, and dragging a foot. So it was like, and and it was doing this same kind of a almost like a howl or howl or a, a whoop, but it was more of a cry, and and it cried out, and it was just um, parallel to us, and that was right there on the Klamath River. And it was parallel to us, and it was it was seemingly injured just by the sound, but we couldn't see it. We were shining our flashlights up there; we couldn't see anything. And then um, it just stopped. There was nothing for like probably ten minutes, and then there was a splash in the river, and we think that it jumped in the river and swam off. Oh, so you had an entirely different um, encounter the year before during that, that when you're working for the feds, is that what I'm gathering? Right. Right. Oh, no. But okay. Right. But uh, I mean, hearing, uh, in <laughs> supposed injured Sasquatch <laughs> yeah. was pretty far from my fathom ability. And, uh, and then, so yeah, you're right, Cliff. There was somewhere in the back of my mind where I was aware that these creatures possibly existed. And so on the rest of my trip, I just kind of, I really put it, I put it in the back of my mind and ended up coming into, uh, within three feet of a huge black bear. And that had me more concerned than, (laughs) than than the first, the first guy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, I got to ask, did you happen to look around your campsite for uh, footprints the next morning um, where the thing walked through your camp? Definitely. I I packed up and looked around and I was on I was on a rock face. There was nothing. Nothing. And yeah. and the and the summer before when the alleged injured one came through, we looked for footprints in the um it was one of those spots on the river where it's really rocky, but then there's those perfect fine sand, little sand beaches, uh-huh. and we couldn't see anything, no tracks. Uh, okay. You know what's interesting was that you guys got the sense this thing was asking you for help in the first. Yes, absolutely. Sorry oh, what to do you mean? You what do you mean by that? Yeah, tell, tell me well, about that, because Bobo knows a lot like, more about your encounter than I do, so I don't know uh, anything, so lay it on me. Oh, okay. Well, it— it um okay I'll I'll tell that story from the beginning. That one um I guess I've always had a harder time with that one because I didn't see it. I only heard it. But I'll tell you all about it. So uh my work partner and I we were you know working for the fed so we were out camping. It was a total internship and um making no money. It was great. But we were we would find all these different places to camp. And this one spot was like this old, um, this like old road river access. And we took the cars down there and we were like, Hey, I think this would be a good spot to sleep. So we ate some food at our cars and then we, you know, gathered up our, our bags and just plopped them down on the river on, and we each, um, we each kind of grabbed one of those little sandy beach spots like that was our own little campsite and so he was easily 20 feet away from me my my buddy and um so we went to sleep and I had I was again no tent 
but I'm in my sleeping bag and I had all my belongings around me, you know, my journal, my book, my headlamp, and I had, I had a knife. <laughs> so, um, we go to sleep and I was, that time I was asleep too. And I wake up to the sound of this step drag, step drag through what was like oak, oak tree litter or duff. And it, it went on for a while. It was down the way a bit and it just kept getting closer up towards us. And it, all we could hear was step drag, step drag. And it stopped right above us and it cried. And it was like, you know, that one, that one, I won't, I'll embarrass myself if I try to mimic it, but it was this, this cry for help is what it seemed like. And we were flashing our lights up there. We couldn't see anything. And I eventually, I put my light down and I was just gripping my knife, but I sort of let down my guard. Cause I'm like, and I even said over to Ben, I go, Ben, what is it? And by then I sort of let my guard down because it was almost like a emotional. It wasn't threatening. And we just sat there for a little while. It all stopped. And I'll be honest, I told, I fell asleep. (laughs) 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 I fell asleep and I woke up to the splash, the sound of the splash of the river. It's draining when you're, when you're in a tense situation like that, like, and your adrenaline's pumping for hours. It's so so like it's just drains your whole body no kidding so yeah so i sometimes get embarrassed on that one that i'm like yeah i passed out <laughs> i just plum passed out because i was just like what in the heck and and we both did we both passed out cold so it could have you know come right past us and we we looked for we looked for any kind of tracks in the duff the next day where it was walking on the beach, in the sand, all around, and didn't see anything. Well, we thought for a long time they're probably pretty aware of their footprints. Um, so that, that's not too surprising, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about the what you actually visually observed. You know, okay. so fast forward a year, I guess, from that that, that the lumpy encounter. Uh, um, you said that it looked like a gorilla. Can you describe what you saw from the top of the head down to wherever you lost it? You know, to its feet, presumably. Mm -hmm. So from the top of the head, it had a big blackish brown squatty head, a big face. I still to this day can look right into its eyes. Big eyes, big bright eyes, kind of a flat face. And the way that it turned its neck, it's like it had no neck. And it just turned completely to the side, almost without moving its shoulders. And the shoulders were very broad and, uh, and wide and huge and, and draping down with these large arms, kind of in a forward motion. So it had just climbed itself up and over this rock face. And at that point, it sort of stopped and was about to propel itself to take off for the mountain. 
when I think it realized that it was not alone. And so it sort of hunched forward, almost like startled. Shoulders come forward, just slightly turning, but the neck turns completely like 90 degrees over towards me. And then down the whole back, I can see its rump and just black, blackish brown uh, fur the whole way down into the legs, muscular legs. I can picture it right now. I mean, I saw muscles. <laughs> thing was huge and ripped and broad and covered in fur. So it must have been a pretty good moon out. You said that earlier, but... Uh, it was, it, I believe it was like few days prior to a full moon. Yeah. And then on a rock, uh, escarpment, of course that reflects and, you know, I, I've done a lot of backpacking in the Sierras, for example, um, and camping on those granite faces. Um, it, it almost is like daylight under right. good moon conditions. It's ridiculous. So, yeah. And my eyes were just cranked in that direction. I didn't move my body at all. So, you know, all I could see was what my eyes could see in a slightly uh, turned and really periphery. But, but I saw it. And that's it, what I saw. You might have said this in your initial uh, description, um, but refresh my memory if you did. Uh, how far away were you from it, from where it came up over the cliff and when it first noticed you? Yeah, so I was on one side of the creek, anywhere between, you know, 15, 20 feet, maybe 30 at the most. And it was just on the other side of that little creek or brook by like five or 10 feet. So oh, so you're within like 40, 50 feet of this thing. Oh, yeah. I, I think that I was within 30 feet. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That, that's and horribly close. <laughs> I was a, I'm a forester. I know what 30 feet is. <laughs> yeah. You know, most people don't, honestly. And I don't, and I don't want to slam people or anything, but people are just terrible at distances. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm sure because you're a forester, you, 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 you depend on your estimation of distances for a lot of what you do, you know, planting trees or whatever. I don't know. There's probably a million things you do that I have no idea about. Um, but to, to have the layman say, oh, it was 10 feet from me, then that's like, okay, well, maybe that's 50. Maybe that's 30. You know, don't really know. But you're confident in your ability to judge distances at this point, right? Yeah. And I've relived the experience in my mind enough and now knowing what 30 feet is confidently that's that's always the number I come back to and I I'm looking at 30 feet away from me right now and I'm like yep yeah that's it was. horrifically <laughs> close you know 30 feet 10 yards that's ridiculous and so honestly I don't know that it so it was, it was slightly hunched forward not on all fours but just enough to where those arms and shoulders were forward. I don't think it was much more than eight feet tall, maybe standing completely upright. It could have been 10, but I, you know, like when I went to the museum in Felton and they have that, like uh, the, the peek through and the, those things are like 15 feet tall, <laughs> like whoa, <laughs> I didn't see anything that was 15 feet tall, just for your guys's records. Mm -hmm. What I saw, I, I really think was about eight to 10 feet tall. Yeah. 
I imagine you spent some time with topo maps because you're doing this trip and you're doing, you might want to go off trail and the whole thing. Um, I'm curious why of all places it walked exactly where you were. I mean, it's, it, that's what, what are the chances of that? Unless it was a path of least resistance in some way, uh, to get to the top of that mountain, perhaps. Do you have any insight or thoughts on that? Yeah, I was off trail. I was, I was off in a place that, um, you know, wouldn't have been right off of a trail on, on a topo map. And mm-hmm. when I kind of was peeking around that, that first lake that I thought I would get to and camp at, I sort of peeked around and just went, you know, the extra, not even quarter mile and sort of looked and was like, what in the world? It's this huge, uh, rock escarpment. Like I'm camping there. That's the spot. Did the creature drop by the lake on the way, like after it left you, the, the on the way to the top of the mountain? No, there was no, there was, do not pass go. It went from me directly up and continued on its already determined route. It knew where it was going and did not stop and went directly from the little creek or brook that I was on and followed that up to the peak and the the lake that little lake would have been off to the west by a good quarter mile yeah it's one of the things we've noticed over the years like yeah uh, tracked a few sasquatches in our time and one of the things um that comes out is sometimes they're meandering about you know and the the stride the, the step lengths are usually shorter and all that they're kind of meandering like they're just kind of poking around, maybe looking for something in particular. But there are other times and cases when they seem to be going somewhere. Like they have a goal in mind and for whatever whatever reason, and you can tell that sometimes because the step length is longer, for example, but they seem to hone in on the direction they need to go and they go that way and nothing gets in their way. If something's there, they might go around something that's, that's insurmountable, some sort of obstacle. But generally speaking, they'll go over whatever it is and just go straight there, you know, just, just you know, as the crow flies, as they say, no matter what's in their way. So maybe this is one of those cases, perhaps. Right. I've thought about the path a lot. And, and I think that it was either a path that it had traveled before multiple times or it was it was um you know just pre-established it was it was a definitely a direct route it it knew where it was going do you have any speculations on why it might have been going there i do the week after uh, my trip ended i was meeting up with some friends to go climb at mount shasta and um to go climb the peak and I'll just tell you guys, I didn't make it. I did not summit because I was so worn out hmm. from, from the hiking trip. And I, my friends actually left me, um, at the, at the start. We, you know, I made it to base camp, but it's a big, it's a big climb to go up Mount Shasta. Well, we but won't anyways. tell anybody it didn't make it. <laughs> I just broadcast that. Um, no one listens to this. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I was so worn out from, from the trip that I, stayed back at our base camp. But when we had gone down, uh, after that to, to the little campground for just like a after trip, uh, camp out before we go head headed back home. 
um, I met this, this woman at the campground there and, um, we, I was with a, a group of girlfriends and, um, so we had kind of befriended her and a bunch of people that she was camping with and they, you know, it was a campground. So they kind of had a party that night and, um, she was this really nice lady and she noticed that I was limping and she was like, what's wrong? Why are you limping? And I was like, Oh, my knee hurts. I kind of blew it out. I just finished up a big hike and, um, it's really sore. And she was like, Oh, well I do Reiki, Reiki healing. Do you, do you want me to do like a little Reiki treatment on you? And I'm like, sure. And so we sit down and I, I give her my knee and she's, you know, rubbing my knee and doing whatever. And she was really interesting. She goes, so you just went on a big, uh, backpacking trip, a big hiking trip by yourself. I'm like, yeah. She's like, that's interesting. And she kind of was looking at me funny. And I was like, yeah, this, this really strange thing happened to me on the trip. And she was like, Oh, tell me. And I was like, well, it was pretty wild. I'm like, I'll, I'll tell you, but <laughs> And so she just listened and she listened to my whole recollection of what had just happened. And I didn't even tell my girlfriends when we went up to Shasta, I didn't even tell them. So she was essentially the very first person who I told. And she listened to my story the whole way through. And she said, I'm a Kaduk Indian and my, my father's Kaduk and has been going up every summer late summer and, um, every once in a while, I don't know what his pattern is, but my father goes up to the tops of the peaks and records Sasquatches doing their mating calls. And I think that that's what you experienced was a Sasquatch mating call. I'll bet if, if you can figure out where that peak was, I'm sure they do it every year on that same peak. Yeah, I can figure it out. I've looked at it in the past, I just haven't come up with a, a map file, but I can do that. But it made a lot of sense to me when she said that. I was like, of course. Of well, yeah, there, are, there aren't very many reasons animals vocalize in general. I mean, because, you know, they don't want to be, they don't want to give their spot away. They give themselves away. Um, and mating, I suppose, would be, be top on the list, I guess, you know, unless they're like highly social, like birds or something like that. You know, always chirping back and forth to one another, humans for that matter. Um, and that's kind of something I bring up quite often is um, when you hear a Sasquatch vocalize, chances are it's not doing that for its own benefit. It's uh, Most animals don't talk to themselves, in other words. Um, humans are kind of special in that way. And, and it, there might be another one nearby, and that's something that you need to keep in mind, I think. Um, yeah. I was surprised you didn't hear one answer at all. Not at all. Yeah, because that's a lot. That, that, that's expending an awful lot of calories to get to at one certain location, you know, because uh, that's climbing straight up to the top of a mountain, basically. That's not easy under any circumstance. Uh, so to get up there and then hoot and holler until morning time, there must be a darn good reason to expend all those calories doing it. And certainly mating uh, would be one of them. Uh, just because a, a rare species like this that's spread very thinly across the landscape has to have some sort of trouble finding other Sasquatches. Now, now let me ask you this real fast. And I know that you, you probably didn't see it's junk or anything like that, but did you get the impression this was a male or a female? I really early on got the impression that it was a male. 
When it okay. was down in the bottom of the canyon, it, I immediately was like, is that a crazy man, a, a drunk guy coming for me? <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting that you uh, suspected even for a moment that this might be a human. So there must have been something about the vocalization that, that reminded you of a human in some sort of way. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So now you, you're a forester for a living. Have you heard other people um, who work for the Forestry Service or feds or anything like that talk about Sasquatch encounters that they've had? I only have one friend um, who's in a slightly related uh, position and career share another story. But I have to be totally honest with you. I, I really don't cross-mingle the Sasquatch sighting with my professional forestry career. Mm-hmm. Um, I've you know, when I've shared the story and my recollection, um, I've been really ridiculed and even by close friends. Um, luckily not any of my family. It's pretty cool. (laughs) My, my family supports me and what I saw, but, uh, I've borderline lost friends over this story. And, and so I, I tend to keep it separate from my, my forestry career. I've, I've shared it with a few um, people, but you know, there has to be a lot of trust there first (laughs) and more of a friendship, but I do have um, a friend who is in a related uh, hydrology field and he and his, his wife had actually come across one up in the feather river Canyon. Um, It's apparently and and allegedly was like a juvenile and they pulled into this remote uh, campsite up in the Feather River Canyon off the highway. And when they pulled in, their headlights were shining on this short kind of squatty kid-like Sasquatch that peered out just from behind the tree, kind of walked out, stared at it right in the headlights and then ran off. I could be incorrect about this because, I mean, obviously I I live, and just like Bobo, we both live pretty Bigfoot-centric lives, you know? Our lives are, are, you know, we're basically drowning in the subject. So we probably have a skewed perception on some of this. But it seems to me, at least, that the Forest Service and a lot of uh, um, those sort of folks in general, forestry people, are kind of opening up a little bit more to it. Uh, like for example, I, I live on timberland and therefore I get like a tax deferment because I have a, I have forests on my property, you know? Um, and so I've been dealing a lot with the Malala district guys, um, cause they have to come out and inspect my property because the previous owners clear cut it and they want to make sure I replant it and all that sort of stuff to kind of keep my forest, uh, deferment for my property taxes. And I talked to them about Bigfoot stuff. They haven't seen any, but they're pretty open to it. And they have, they have some good questions and whatever. Um, and uh, as listeners of the podcast will know this past fall, uh, Mount Hood, uh, some uh, well, some not not uh, in an official capacity, but um, rangers from the Mount Hood National Forest reached out to me because they got a uh, Sasquatch sighting reported to them. So uh, it seems that that um, that icy wall is somewhat breaking down, uh, to some degree at least. Um, maybe it's just because the old the, the older folks are retiring or dying off, and the new generations coming in, and they're a little bit more open to that sort of thing. Or I don't know what it is, but can you comment at all about anything that I've just said? Like, do you yeah. think that's true at all, or what? Do you, what are your thoughts? I think I think that the icy wall you describe is is coming down, 
but it just doesn't do the the uh, the scientific community any justice that it's not you know a classified um, species species it's not you know keyed out as a living existing thing and so that's where I mean once it is adopted as a as a as a classified um, primate mammal then that wall's gone but without having that scientific you know background of a scientific name it's going nowhere <laughs> yeah yeah what do you what do you think is going to happen because you know these are i mean obviously you know they're real clearly yeah. you know um and yeah. it's only therefore in my opinion it's really only a matter of time until the type specimen is brought in um, what do you think uh, that will look like from your end? Like, uh, how it'll affect your job, and and how how will, do you think it'll go down? Basically, how it would affect my my career is, you know, it would uh, probably, for one, open up a bunch of experiences and encounters that people have never reported, and just go, "Yep, I saw one here. I saw one here," and those stories will be coming out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I mean. It, it, at that point would probably be identified as a somewhat endangered, if not extinct species. And so there would be protection measures, I would hope, put into place. And so that would be, that would be good. <laughs> yeah. Cause it would have to immediately, I imagine, be declared endangered, even if it's not. And I don't think they are necessarily, but I think it would be immediately declared as endangered until a thorough ecological study could be done. And, you know, the way these things are, that could take a decade, man. Right. That would, it would be really beneficial, I think, for the protection and for the, the knowledge that it is a, not a hoax or b not some, you know, myth, mythical creature. Yeah. It would, it would validate a whole lot of witnesses. Um, it would do that. It would go. It would validate entire cultures, like the the indigenous cultures of North America. They they would get such a, a validation to their stories and and unique um, oral traditions. Um, but it, it, it also, you know, you said a whole lot of stories will come out. I would also predict that a whole lot of videos and photographs will come out that people mm-hmm. have just been sitting on um, because they don't want to be thought a fool or the local drunk or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, hopefully some immediate protection measures. So yeah, I'll sit on yeah. that panel for sure. Oh, fantastic! Well, so Sarah, um, Bobo and I have both heard from more than one source um, that people very high up in the government are aware of these things. But um, what do you have any thoughts on some sort of overarching conspiracy or some nonsense? Or I, I think most conspir- conspiracies are nonsense, um, personally. So are there any conspiracy, conspiratorial thoughts in your mind about this? Because obviously um, there would be a huge economic uh, issue um, for closing off a lot of land and all this other stuff. Because we, we all saw what the um, the snail darter fish uh, the consequences of that or the consequences of the spotted owl in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, I would say that the logging industry still hasn't really fully recovered from that whole ordeal. Um, do you think there's any sort of conspiracy amongst the, any level of government um, that's a concerted effort? Or do you think it's just individuals not really wanting to talk about it? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't know enough to to know about a concerted effort, but what comes to mind is I think it's more in my industry specifically, I think it's more 
almost of a jealous feeling that they haven't seen one. And so they immediately knock it down. Mm. Now at the higher level, you know, with, um, leadership, government, um, decision makers, I'm honestly at a loss of, of why this isn't, um, a, you know, a documented species. And so, so I've had, you know, thoughts of my own of, is there, is there some sort of conspiracy to, to protect or to hide this, this creature from legitimacy? I mean, I've had that thought myself a lot because I saw what I saw and it's still not a believed, uh, creature for the most part. And so it's, it's actually kind of frustrating, not kind of, it's very frustrating from my end. It's, there's some, um, emotions that go along with it, like embarrassment and, and like I said, maybe jealousy from the others. You know, and especially with this species of all of them, because, you know, we study the other apes, for example, to learn more about ourselves. That's our biological family, right? And you would think that like, oh, here's an opportunity to learn so much more about where we came from. Uh, Like, why wouldn't they just jump on this? It just doesn't make sense to me at all. But so I've always thought like, if there is some sort of effort. It's really a passive effort. I mean, people aren't going out and, you know, squat black, people in like black SUVs aren't picking up dead ones on the side of the road, in my opinion, or anything like that. Although I've heard more than my fair share of stories like that. I've heard of stories probably once every two weeks in my Bigfoot museum up here by Portland, Oregon. Uh, somebody comes in, ask me about uh, these conspiratorial ideas of helicopters whisking uh, dead Bigfoots away from Mount St. Helens after it blew in 1980. Um, but if there is a conspiracy, it must be an awful passive one. Um, something like, well, the Bigfoot seem to be taking care of themselves pretty well, so let's not expend any resources towards this because they, they got it under control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a happy thought. I'm going to go with that one. And I think uh, I think we're all leaning on you, Cliff and Bobo, <laughs> to help us, <laughs> you know, help this species become something that's validated, recognized, and, and uh, approved by the scientific community. <laughs> well, shoot, this has been a good one, Cliff. What do you think that was our best witness testimony so far, I'd say? Yeah, that's fantastic. Just uh, the, the, the proximity of the encounter, the, ob- uh, the observations you made, um, and knowing that uh, we're speaking to a legit you know, forestry professional here, um, all of those things uh, just tie into this beautiful situation that you brought us, man. This is an amazing encounter. Thank you so much, Bubba, for setting this up. And thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. Absolutely honored, you guys. Thank you so much. And uh, like I said, I, I really appreciate your guys' work. Um, I've been following you guys and watching the shows and now listening to this this podcast. And and I really look up to you guys. This is this truly a an honor. And today's uh, talk has been a dream come true. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> uh, I used to watch the show a bunch and I'm like, oh, come on, Cliff. <laughs> I was yelling at you from... <laughs> From my living room. Uh, well, you know, people yelled at me on on set too. So yeah, <laughs> I was always having to keep that guy straight. Yeah, thank yeah. God I had Bobo to to point the way for me. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you see anything else out in the woods or hear something, you let us know and come back on. Okay, I will do that. Quit and my shoot, day job. 
<laughs> oh yeah, Qu- quit your day jobs, do do Bigfoot stuff full time. There's no money in it, but holy smokes, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> great. All right, thank you All so right. much, Sarah. Thank Bye. you guys. Bye. So Bobo, man, that that was a great witness. I, I can't believe you pulled one out like that. That was amazing. Yeah, and you recognize that story, I'm sure, right off the bat. I have read it. I have read it. But, you know, th- things get jumbled in my mind, you know, like all these, all these, basically all the reports from the last 25, 26 years of doing this just get all jumbled up. So it's nice to have a refresher course, especially when it's straight from the witness's mouth. Yeah, she was excellent at relaying details and uh, her memory was great. Her observational skills were great. I mean, and she's cautious. She even said, like, I, I at one point she said, I'm not so sure that I, I so I'm not going to say it. You know, like, I think it was the peak of the mountain, if I remember right. Uh, she's cautious about what she's saying to make sure that everything she's saying is accurate. And I, I so appreciate that from a witness instead of just making something up or answering, even though they may not be 100% for sure. Right, right. Yeah, those, those are the witnesses everyone dreams about talking to. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic, man. So thank you, Bob. So that was amazing. Yeah. We got some great guests coming up. So if you're listening to this one, folks, we got more coming for you. And until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 